those of you that are new to our church, uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Adam. Uh, it's good to meet you. I'm the lead pastor here. I, I do a, a majority of the, the teaching and preaching here. Um, not all of it, but, but most of it. Um, you've caught us uh, in the middle of a sermon series titled Rescue to Rejoice. So if you received a bulletin, you'll see that. Uh, we are slowly and methodically just working our way through the book of Exodus. So if you've been around the Bible, uh, you'll be probably familiar with many of these um, narratives and stories that we're going to be walking through over the course of the next several weeks and months. Um, if you're new to the Bible, uh, this, this could be really exciting for you because uh, this, this is a great book. Um, and so this morning we are in um, Exodus. We're going to pick up, uh, we're kind of in the middle of a conversation. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 16 of chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn that on or open that up to Exodus chapter 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We'll have the words projected for you. Um, we say this frequently. I'll say it again. We love to give away free Bibles. We've got lots of them. Um, and so if you want a Bible from the version that I read and preach from, which is the English Standard Version, uh, you're welcome to grab one in the lobby uh, either now or on your way out. Uh, we'd love to, to put one of those in your hands. Uh, before we read the text this morning, a um, little bit of insight into my weekly life. Um, I, uh, we don't, as you know, we don't have a permanent church structure during the week, and so I'm a very mobile um, person uh, as far as working places, and I'm, I'm frequently out in public, uh, so you're likely to run into me at a Starbucks or um, restaurant or or any, anywhere. I'm all over the place. Uh, you'll, you'll never know where I'll pop up. But uh, one of the things that I have um, been inclined to do as I've been more and more mobile for more and more times is, is I listen to people. Um, I, you know, we're, we're sitting next to each other and I'm working. Sometimes I'll put my headphones on, but if I can tell it's a very intense conversation, I will pause my music and I will listen to you. Um, <laughs> listen, th this is a public space, so I have no problem. I mean, let's call it what it is. I, I eavesdrop. Um, but I, I listen to people and um, I, I, there's some scenarios in life, you know, that are not so public where you want to be a quote, fly on the wall, so to speak, where you can just listen and observe a conversation uh, without really being involved in it. Um, that's what we're in the middle of here in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, we're in the middle of a conversation between uh, a man, his name is Moses, and Almighty God. And we get to be the fly on the wall, as it were, as we listen to this conversation happen. So we're picking up kind of in the middle of it. If you haven't been with us, that's all right. You'll be able to catch up what's going on. But just as by way of reminder, uh, the context is Moses in the wilderness at a burning bush still. So this is still the burning bush that refuses to be consumed. The Almighty God in the presence of Moses speaking to him. Uh, picking up in verse 16 of chapter 3, I'm actually going to go through chap uh, verse 17 of chapter 4. So a little bit of a longer reading, but it's, it's a narrative and a conversation, so I hope you'll be able to, to follow along. This is the word of the Lord. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, this is God speaking, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall, take, shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the, put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs." This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we pray that you would plainly make yourself known. That this would not just be some ancient story uh, that appears mythic and fairy tale-ish to us, but Lord, that it would become the very real and living word of God. We need your help, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, so is anybody watching the Olympics? A few of us are watching the Olympics. I know, I know some of you like, don't watch TV or you don't even own a TV. For, for, the, for the rest of us that are a little, little lower on the holiness platform, um, the, Olympics, um, the Olympics have captivated me. Um, uh, you know, Every couple of years, obviously they come on, and, but I find myself more and more every year, more and more consumed by them. Like it is, it's eating my evenings away. I'm just going to be honest. Um, we're, we're watching the Olympics fairly, fairly faithfully. Um, and as I'm sitting there, you know, I mean, 
I'm sitting there on the couch, and you know, we're two hours deep into this thing, and I'm watching you know, people just lunge themselves down a tube of ice, you know, and I'm asking myself, like, how do people get involved in these things? Um, you know, you, you see the slalom, all these sports that I have little to nothing to do with. Like, I'm, I'm very unfamiliar with these sports, but I'm so captivate, captivated by it and, and really consumed by it. And I begin to ask myself, why? Like, why do I care so much about these sports that, honestly, before today, I didn't even know they existed, to be honest? And, um, you know, some of the answers, you know, might be like, you know, the, the streak of patriotism that runs through us, and we love all that the Olympics stand for. But that's not it for me. I mean, I'm American, but it's not really that that gets me. What it is for me, um, and what it's really drawn out in me, is that the Olympics uniquely highlight two things for me. Um, they uniquely highlight my inadequacies. Like, they, they show me that I can't do most of the things that are being done. And so, on the one hand, I see my inadequacies, but on the other hand, it highlights my desire to be great. Like, I want to be great at something. Uh, I've pretty much chalked it up that Olympics won't be my thing. I'm not nearly committed enough to do that. But, but, but both of these things, I think, have, have really, it's drawn out of me. Like, I'm, I'm inadequate and I'm, and I'm flawed on a number of levels, but I still have this desire to do something great with my life. Um, may, maybe for you it's not Olympics, okay? So scratch the Olympics. Um, you know, maybe your platform for greatness uh, is, is parenting. A lot, of, a lot of children, a lot of parents in here. Like maybe um, your um, ability to, to be something meaningful in this world is through your children, right? And so I think that can do a couple of things, the same thing the Olympics is doing for me. I think it can show you that desire for greatness, but it can also really point out your inadequacies and flaws, right? When you're, when you're having that off night, you know, when, when Saturday night just begins spiraling downhill in the abyss of, of crying and temper tantrums. Or, or maybe, maybe you're not a parent. Um, maybe for you, um, it, it, it's all about um, financial success. And so it's, it's about crafting a portfolio that will stand up to, 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 you know, probably just your neighbor, but even maybe even higher levels where you'll be recognized for having a, a, a wealthy lifestyle. You'll be able to do things that people can't do because you've, you've tracked career-wise or financial-wise. And so, so on the one hand, that's drawing out of you this desire to have greatness. But on the other hand, you realize there's inadequacies there. Like you, you'll never make enough. Like it begins to kind of, it kind of shows that, that hole, that abyss that's there that there will never be enough. Uh, I could go on. Uh, maybe it's ministry for you. Maybe you're, you're extremely involved in, in some community, outreach, uh, altruistic. You know, you, you love serving people and others, and that's your desire to be greatness, but at the end of the day, you feel inadequately flawed. Um, maybe, last, last example here, um, maybe you're someone who only feels your inadequacy and flaws. You know, like you've lost the vision for greatness, and you're just trying to get the bills paid at this point. I mean, like the, the ruts and the routines of life have really just, just draped any desire to do anything significant in this world. And so you're just, you're really, you're always hearing the constant criticism of yourself, of your inadequacies and flaws. Um, you're not far off from this text if, if any of those 
touched on you in any areas. Um, see, see that Moses is, is right where we are. Um, he's, he's really in this, this I'm going to present it as a sweet spot. He's really in this spot between having this grand call from God. He's going to do something great for God. But he's, he's feeling completely inadequate for it. And, and, I, and my suggestion today as we look at this narrative is the gap between our inadequacies and God's sufficiency to do something in our lives is the sweet spot. Like that's actually where God wants us to be. Um, Mo- Moses, you know, God is, is so patient in this text, it's going to wear thin at the end, but um, we're going we're gonna to see that Moses has objection after objection after objection of why God can't do something in his life. In fact, he's got five of them. Today we're, we're looking at three of them. We've kind of touched on the first two objections. Today there's, there's really three questions um, that Moses asks of God. They're, they don't come out as question marks in our English, but the way the original writing reads, it's, it's a question. And here's Moses' ob- objection to why God can't do something great in his life. The first one is, they'll never believe me. What if? He begins the what if stuff. So what if they don't believe me? The second question is, uh, what, what about my speech problem? So that, that uniquely flawed part of him, we'll talk about what that looked like. But what about my speech problem, God? What are you going to do with that? Um, and then the third thing of his objection is, is there anybody else? Can anybody else do this job but me? Um, and so the answer to the question is how I want to build this sermon. Um, the answer to this question is, this is how God... Um, confronts Moses' and our objections to being used. Uh, he shows us first the point of God's signs. Um, secondly, he's going to show us the power of God's sovereignty. And then lastly, he's going to show us the purpose of God's sending. Okay, so try to make those kind of memorable. No, there will be no test at the end, so you're okay. Um, first, let's look at the point of God's signs. Um, Mo- Moses begins playing the what-if game with God. You ever play that game? Like, what if this happens? Or what about this? Do you ever think about this one, God? Like, he, he, like the all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God who Moses knew, he begins playing the what-if game. Like, God hasn't thought of that already. Um, he says, essentially, you know, the, the fundamental problem it, with Moses and his objection is that he has no confidence that God will do what he has said he will do. Uh, the, the fundamental problem with Moses' objection is he is doubting God's credibility to keep his word. He, he's, he's fundamentally pulling the rug out from God saying, I don't think you can do what you're saying you can do. Um, and, and maybe even on the back side of that or the other side of the coin of that is Moses is protecting his reputation. Let's be honest, he doesn't want to be rejected. Right? Like he's, he's going to leave the wilderness and go to these Israelites who've been enslaved for generation after generation while he's been living lifestyle of the rich and famous, and he's going to tell them that he's their deliverer. He doesn't think that's going to go well. He has a fear of reputation, so God says, I'm going to give you three signs. I'm going to give you three unmistakable marks that my power is at work in this. Um, now, the, back, the backdrop to this is Egypt. So Egypt was a, uh, it's just a cultural milieu of just diverse, magical, and divine arts. So I I won't spend a ton of time. When we get to the plagues, we'll talk a little bit more about this. But um, it's just this, this, just a, a, a diverse background of the magical arts. I'll just put it that way for now. 
And God begins to confront it first by turning a staff, an ordinary thing, into a snake. So, you know, Moses, this wasn't crafted by God. Uh, Moses had a staff. Why? Because he was a shepherd. So God takes this ordinary thing that was in an ordinary man's hand. He says, what's that in your hand? It's a staff. Okay, throw the staff on the ground. It turns into a snake. So really, this is a, you know, a perfect demonstration of divine power at work in very ordinary ways. Like this, there was no hocus pocus. Uh, he didn't recant some, some lines. Um, he didn't throw magic dust on anything. God said, throw it on the ground, and it, it changed. Changed from a staff to a snake. Um, the second thing that happens is he says, okay, well, if that's not going to be enough to convince them, um, the second thing is I want you to take your hand and put it in the cloak, take it out of the cloak. It's going to be snowy, flaky white. Probably leprosy, could have been Hansen's disease. There's a number of discussions on what it was. It doesn't matter. The point was I'm going to take your hand and put the sign of cursing on it. See, in this culture, this, the, 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 the sign of being cursed by the divine God was to be unhealthy. So God says, look, I'm going to make you unhealthy, and I'm going to heal you. Essentially saying, there's nobody else like me that can do that. Who blesses and heals cursed people? The Lord. And then the third sign, just to top things off, God does a direct attack on the Egyptian life source, the Nile. The Nile River was the source of life for the Egyptians. It was where they everything in their currency and in their life-sustaining uh, economy came from the Nile. God says, just take a little bit of that water, throw it on the ground, it's going to turn into blood. Essentially saying, I control everything. There's nobody else like me, is what the Lord's saying. Um, here's here's kind of the thing I want you to see from these signs. Um, it's not the sign themselves that matters, but two things. It's who the signs were for and how they function for us. So if you notice, the signs were not for the Egyptians. They were for the Israelites. This was to convince them that God was going to use Moses to deliver them. So the sign was not for unbelievers to believe. It was for believers to believe. Okay? So hang on to that. Um, you'll, if, if you've been around the Bible, you'll, you'll know Jesus frequently um, had to, to deal with religious people um, all the time. Um, because religious people have all the answers. And so um, Jesus, um, you know, one of the things that he dealt with was his, his miracles and the nature of them, right? So why did, why did Jesus do these things? I mean, his, his first miracle was changing, what, water into wine, right? And so the nature of his ministry was healing and miraculous on a number of levels, but it was just to demonstrate divine power in this one man, uh, the religious people in John chapter 4 um, would say this, what sign do you do that we might see and believe you? I mean, they were testing Jesus. Show us your power. Uh, Jesus would say this, he'd said, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. And so he's addressing the unbelief of the Israelites right there, and he's saying, you need these signs and miracles to give belief that is not already there. So, so here's, here's a question. Um, does God still do that today? I, I'm not, not opening up like a can of worms as, as far as, you know, what, what is the function of, of miracles. I'm not, not, not talking about that. What I am talking about is how does God strengthen 
the faith of his believers today? And my answer to that would be, uh, yes, he does give signs, but not in the way that you might expect them. Um, See, you and I want concrete evidence like this. We would love God to do something miraculous in our midst that would define nature in a way that would say, oh, God must exist. But, But the nature of these three signs and the nature of the signs that God does today are the same, and it's this, change. Um, All three of these signs involve changing from one thing to another. Um, The things that he changed were finite and earthly, and the things that God now changed are spiritual and people. And so, um, so the life that is changed by the good news about Jesus is the sign of belief. Like the life that has been radically altered by a message of radical grace is the thing that strengthens belief. See, the the point of the signs was to display God's power and authority. And what is the hardest thing to change? Is it a piece of wood or is it a cold stone heart? And God begins changing those when Jesus comes. He begins changing hearts to reveal the power and authority of, of this one. So that's the point of God's signs. Well, let's, let's look secondly um, at the power of God's sovereignty. So objection uh, two for today, four overall, is uh, Moses' speech problem. Uh, the way the text reads is, Moses says, I've got a heavy tongue and a heavy mouth. Um, there's all kinds of speculation about what this is. Um, does, does Moses have a, a speech impediment? Possibly, probably. Um, is this Moses expressing um, his rustiness in Hebrew? So he would have needed to speak Hebrew to the Israelites, and he's been in Egyptian life for a while. So like, is he, is he talking about a language barrier? Maybe. Um, Is he just not a persuasive and eloquent public speaker? I mean, who really is? Um, So, like, all these things, speculation. Uh, Here's here's really the point. Moses feels inadequate. Um, He feels very inadequate, and God addresses his inadequacy, really largely in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, with some rhetorical questions. Who made your mouth, and who made it like that? Uh, In other words, whatever the problem is, whether it was a real speech impediment or a desire to know his Hebrew better, God is saying, I made you like that on purpose. I want you like that. I, I need your flaws to be used by me, is what he begins to show Moses. And so God is really showing Moses that that he's the one who determines both the physical and spiritual giftedness of an individual. And he does it according to his own desire and pleasure. Period. Like God uniquely chooses to display his own glory through physically flawed people like us. Like, Let me just make it abundantly clear right now. God didn't have to use a man to deliver his people. Like, 
I don't know if that's just the, the obvious, but like God could have come in and authoritatively blown the doors open, so to speak, and, and, and shown Pharaoh who was, who was boss, right? But God chose a flawed man, Moses, to do his bidding. Like it was intentional. Um, some of you have probably heard of this woman. Her name's uh, Joni Erickson Tata. Um, great, great woman of God, has written many books, speaks a lot. If you haven't heard of her, I would encourage you to, to read some of her stuff. But if you don't know her story, um, Joni Erickson Tata, uh, at the young age of 18, uh, dove into the Chesapeake Bay and misjudged its depths and um, fractured her spine in a number of places and was immediately paralyzed from the shoulders down. And she, um, you know, she writes about her story and her struggles and her anger towards God in this young life, seemingly wasted. Um, and um, in one of her books, it's called The God I Love, um, she says this. She says, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And... Um, I've read that quote a number of times, both in its context and used other places. Let me, let me say it again. I don't, did I put it up? There we go. Um, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Um, I think Moses is learning that. Um, you've got you've to begin to, I mean, we're empathizing with Moses right now. Like He is completely insufficient for what God is calling him to do. He cannot do it on his own strength. And, um, and God has designed something to be a barrier to that, his speech problem. And he specifically gave it to Moses. And so, you know, draw the parallels as far as you want to physical things and suffering that we would say God is sovereign over that. Um, nothing happens apart from God's sovereign hand allowing and determining it to happen. So physically, acts of history, God is on his throne designing everything to work according to his will and his pleasure. I mean, spiritual capacities. Like maybe you've had these, these birth dreams and visions of doing these grand things for God and just nothing has played out. And you're, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're, you've come to the wall in time and time again. And we must say that God frequently and specifically wants us to feel our weakness and flaws in those moments because of his divine power. It's what he's teaching Moses and I think that's what he's teaching us. That his sovereign power um, has design behind it. But, but lastly, um, we, we see the, the purpose of God's sending. Let's look at the purpose of God's sending, kind of looking at verses 13 down through the end. Um, I'm a rather young adult. Many of you remind me that I'm still young, but I'm beginning to feel middle-aged. Uh, I'm 30, 30, how old? 36 now. Sorry, I got to do that math. You stopped counting at 21, right? I mean, um, so I'm 36 now, and um, my life feels rather fulfilled uh, for the most part, living the dream, doing what I think God's called me to do. I've got wonderful children, an awesome wife, all these things. But there's one missing component of my life um, as an adult that I've always wanted. I've wanted to be called to jury duty. Um, I've always wanted to be a part of a jury duty. 
And I don't know why. Uh, perhaps it's because I watch a lot of crime investigation shows. I don't know, but it's an unfulfilled part of my life. So if any of you have strings, pull those. Um, I want in. Um, but, but what I've heard from you, and, and even my own brother has been called twice. It's like, God, why? You know, like, I'm here. Send me. Um, uh, you know, but what I hear from people that get called to jury duty is, by and large, they look for every excuse to get out of it, right? I mean, that's kind of what you guys do is like, oh, I got called to jury duty. I got to figure out how to get out of this. Um, Moses is doing the same thing. He's pulling the same shenanigans right here with God. He's saying, okay, last, last string, God, is there anybody else that can do this, right? Like, is there any way that I can just get out of what you're calling me to do? Um, and God makes it very clear, um, no, there's not. Um, and in verse 14, uh, God, God gets angry. Um, the, the question actually is, you know, well, let, me, let me pause there. Uh, God has, got ang- has been angry before in the Bible. Um, and up to this point, his anger has been largely um, corporate. Uh, it's been largely over, you know, a people. So he, he gets mad at his people for their foolishness and rebellion. But this is the first time in the Bible where it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against an individual. He's angered at Moses. Uh, The way the Bible describes God, um, his anger, and it's used here, is he has a hot nose. Um, The other way that God describes his, um, his demeanor towards people is he has a long nose, meaning he's patient. Long-suffering. So in, in the scriptures, when we read that God is patient and kind towards us, it's describing God as having a long nose towards us. Well, here his nose is no longer long. It's now hot. God's nose has become hot towards Moses. And the question is, why? You know, what, what is God mad about? Is he just frustrated with the excuses? Like, you know, Moses, I've, I've given you this calling. It's going to be great. It's going to really work out. And I'm just really frustrated and mad about your excuses. I don't, I don't think it's just that. Um, I think the compilation of the excuses has now really compressed itself in Moses' heart where he has said to God, you are not credible to me. He said, you're not. I don't believe you. Um, I don't want any part of this or you. Um, he's, he's really, um, he, has, he has really stirred up in his own affections the disposition of unbelief towards God. And it's angered him. It has hotly kindled wrath. Um, but notice how God responds. It's almost, it's almost too quick. Uh, Verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and then he provides a substitute. He provides a redeemer for Moses, his brother Aaron. He says, well, your brother Aaron, he's pretty good at speaking. He'll make up for your flaws. He'll provide what's lacking for you. Um, And so we see, even in the midst of hot anger, God has a bent towards grace. Like his inclination is to provide what we can't provide for ourselves. Is to meet us where we are utterly flawed and completely inadequate 
and say, I will provide what you cannot provide for yourself. So God graciously sends him a redeemer. And he takes these two flawed instruments, Moses and Aaron, and he changes the course of the world through them. Um, see, this narrative, I mean, this is, this is us. I mean, the reluctancy of Moses pales in comparison to our reluctancy. Now, it's not recorded in Scripture, and oftentimes it's hidden in the corners of our lives, but let me remind you what you bring to the table with God. Um, a heart that is utterly disposed to running from Him. Like at every corner and turn to trusting in your own strength. To trying to muster up enough power and ability and influence so that you wouldn't have to, to depend on anybody but yourself. Um, our hearts are naturally inclined to even deny his very existence. The one who hands us all life and goodness and gifts for us to turn back praise is ultimately difficult. It takes a lot in us. I mean, I mean, look at us. We are holding leather-bound books with the very words of the living God inscribed in them. We believe this is inerrant, infallible, perfectly sustained for us to read. We've got all of the chronicles of God's act of history, and we still have a hard time believing it. Right? Our hearts are so reluctant. We ask for more signs, more wonders, more evidence, more proof. Give us facts. Show me something. But God gave us the one act of revelation that we all needed to believe. And it was the arrival of His Son. God Almighty comes and He takes on our human experience. Um, he's sinless and without flaw, but he bears the same nature as you. In other words, he knows emotions. Um, he knows reluctancy to serve God in the garden. He says, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He knows your temptations. He knows the desire to find comfort in anything but God. He knows all of it. And yet he faced a death that should have come to people like us. A death that wasn't, it wasn't just some misconstrued set of circumstances. Like, like, you know, the good guy got a bad jury. You know, like, it wasn't that. It was the very will of God to send his own son to bear the wrath of his anger for us. Like, to take all of it, all of it, on himself so that you and I would never have to. See, Jesus comes and he faces the hot, white nose of a holy and righteous God so that you and I would only see the long nose of a patient and long-suffering God. See, one of the questions, and I'll, I'll just close with this comment. One of the questions I have come across in a number of conversations that I've had with with non-Christians. So these are people that would not profess to believe what, what many of us, not necessarily all of us, but many of us are professing to believe. And the question is, what does it mean to be a Christian? 
And when I'm asked that question, what I think people are looking for is what they need to do, right? Give me a list of rules that I have to follow and vices that I have to avoid. That's what people want. Like, how hard is this being a Christian thing? And I would, I would say, scrap that um, answer. Here's my answer. What it means to be a Christian is to come to the point where Moses is, where he's at the end of himself, completely and utterly flawed, inadequate, insufficient, unable to hold terms with the God that's in front of him, and to be okay with that, knowing that someone else came in and did what he could not do. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to put all of your trust in the one man, the Lord Jesus, who did what you'll never be able to do, to withstand the white-hot wrath of an angry God and to rise and conquer death. It's what he did for us. May we believe that evermore today. Let's pray. Father, we are Moses. We are reluctant and reserved to do big and bold things in our lives. Uh, and, and Lord, when we do try to do those things, we do it on our own merit and strength. So Lord, I pray that you would do, do two, a couple of things in us, Lord, that you would help us to deeply feel our inadequacies and our flaws, Lord. We feel them all the time. Lord, we, we crush ourselves with the, the guilty voice that cries out how we'll never be enough. But Lord, I pray that you would silence that by showing us the one who came to be our mouth, the advocate, the one who sits at your right hand and whispers the very promises of God for us the one who's given us all the righteousness we'll ever need to stand firmly in your presence. Lord, help us to believe even more today on that one. Change us. Make your power known through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.